On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Closer Look podcast. Our guests today are Dr. Stephanie Moulton, a professor of public policy at the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. She's also a visiting scholar at the Philly Fed. We're also joined by Dr. Stephanie Casey Pierce, who is a postdoc at Ohio State right now. And in the fall, she'll be starting a tenure track position as an assistant professor of public policy in the Department of Political Science at the University of Tennessee. Congratulations, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to both of you about your recent publication in JPAM. The study is entitled, Does Temporary Mortgage Assistance for Unemployed Homeowners Reduce Longer-Term Mortgage Default? An Analysis of the Hardest Hit Fund Program. This important work and and this timely work is co-authored with a few other researchers, including Yung Chun, senior researcher at the Social Policy Institute at Washington University in St. Louis, Roberto Garcia, the Harris Distinguished Professor of City and Regional Planning at UNC Chapel Hill, Sarah Riley, also at UNC Chapel Hill, and Holly Holtzen. Now, before we get started, I also want to mention and talk to Dr. Pierce a little bit about her involvement with the HHF on the policy design and implementation side. It's my understanding that you've been involved in the Hardest Hit Fund program from the very beginning in Ohio. Can you share a little bit about your your background and experience working on this particular program? Yeah, so I was involved with the Hardest Hit Fund program from its earliest days when we were designing the program. That's actually where I originally met Dr. Moulton. And at that time, we were um, designing the program and figuring out how it was going to run. And then I went on to eventually become the director of that program. So I was involved from its inception through the wind down in 2014. So you're really familiar with with all the ins and outs of the Hardest Hit Funds program. And I, I think that shows in your very careful and detailed analysis of the program, sort of knowing all the all the background and contextual factors. And it's pretty cool to be on the evaluation side of a program you were involved with in the first place, I'm sure. It's been really interesting to study this and go in depth. And also just to know that, you know, as we're finding that the hard work and efforts that um, we all put in have paid off and had positive results for the homeowners who participated in the program. And so in today's episode, we're going to talk about the the benefits of the program and how homeowners were, you know, how homeowners benefited from it. To motivate the policy you're studying, And more generally, I think a goal of public policy is correcting market failures or fixing situations where the private market fails to deliver an optimal outcome. One of the most common types of market failures that we think about is externalities or external costs. That happens when one person's decision affects other people. Now, a foreclosure on some level is a decision, a choice people make. They might not have a ton of choice in in doing it, but what are the costs that foreclosures impose on society as a whole, on the neighborhood as a whole, and why is it so important to try to to mitigate those consequences? 
Yeah, no, that's a really important question. And I mean, honestly, foreclosures are sort of the classic case of, of what you just referred to, a negative externality, where the outcome isn't just costly for the individual involved, but it's also going to have spillover costs on society. In this case, you know, like those spillover costs are not just the individual, but they're also the lender, they're the community, their government. And so, you know, we, a foreclosure typically occurs when somebody has a mortgage on their property, or it could even be, you know, a tax lien on the property, and they fail to make those payments or meet their obligations. And when that happens, then the lender recaptures the property and sells it to help pay off that mortgage that the person owes. But that process of kind of the lender recapturing the property and then paying it off oftentimes results in uh, the, the property selling for less than um, what it would have sold for if the person were able to just sell it outright. And there's also a, a long period of time when that property will often sit vacant where we might have kind of increases in, in neighborhood crime. So while the, like, the property is clearly bad for the homeowner, I mean, it's a forced eviction, they lose any equity that they had in the property. It's this long-term damage to their credit and ability to get a loan in the future. So that's a huge cost to the borrower. But the is also often selling this home for less than the balance of the mortgage against the property. And you've got this lengthy process that's really costly to the lender. And the average lender actually loses 20 to 40% of the balance of the unpaid loan. They, they call this thing loss severity. And we talk about these loss severity rates. And, and actually, some of that money that's lost is actually borne by the federal government. So about 70% of mortgages today that are originated are either you know, a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. You've probably heard of those two things or FHA mortgage. And this basically means that the federal government is coming in and insuring these mortgages. And so some of that loss is, is actually borne by by the federal government. And so in addition, so the federal government and the lenders are losing money from selling this, this house for less than for, for less than what they owe, oftentimes for less than comparable properties. But they also, this sitting vacant for months and even years and, and this kind of increase in prime that might occur reduces the neighboring property values. So there have been lots of studies that have shown that it's not only that property that's selling for less, it's also neighboring properties are actually having this spillover of this decline in property values. Because, and so if you could think about a situation where, like with the Great Recession, where we had a lot of properties foreclosing in a neighborhood that's going to just dampen everybody else's house values in that neighborhood. If it's one, you know, you might get a short spillover, but if it's a lot of properties foreclosing all at once, depresses property values. And that's bad for everybody involved and bad for local governments who rely on property tax, you know, if the, if the underlying values go down. So it just creates these, these kind of really bad externalities for governments and individuals. So many parties are hurt by foreclosure over and above the, the individual that's losing their home. And so that makes me think there should be some public support for averting foreclosures. Is there public support for the type of intervention that you're studying and more generally for sort of insurance against foreclosures, insurance for the housing market uh, during economic downturns? And I think that what we have seen is sort of an evolution in in public support and more importantly, um, you know, support among policymakers. In the early days of the Great Recession, there was actually quite a bit of debate among policymakers about what to do. 
about foreclosures. So I think over time, as the externalities of foreclosures became more clear, there was some support, but there was disagreement about where the burden should fall and should should lenders be doing something about this? Should lenders take a haircut? That was a term I often heard at the time. Or should it be, you know, is this a role for the government to step in and, and do something? And we actually saw that states were the ones who were getting into this first. So they were already experimenting with a variety of different types of foreclosure prevention policies, you know, in the early days of the Great Recession, you know, their options were limited. And a lot of those policies centered around educating homeowners or just telling homeowners, you know, go to your lender and ask for some sort of intervention. We didn't actually see the federal government step in until later um, in early 2009. And even then, lenders were still hesitant to participate. And I think what we're seeing now is that in the response to the more recent recession, both lenders and governments acted really quickly. And I think that shows that there is a lot more support, but just also just some realization that, you know, acting fast is in our best interest if we want to stave off some of the bigger consequences of a housing crisis. And so when we do talk about the government acting fast or getting involved, what does that look like? What are they doing? What are the policy levers available to avoid foreclosures and how do they work? You know, there's really the tool that we think about using depends on what we think the root cause of the problem is. And so, you know, in different market contexts, so like in the Great Recession, if we think part of the problem is, you know, people losing their jobs, but also house prices that are just going down and people are in a negative equity situation where they owe more than the home is worth. You know, we might come up with one set of policy solutions that's going to look different than what we might come up with when COVID hits in a relatively strong housing market, quite frankly. And, you know, people were uh, not underwater on their mortgages when this crisis hit. And, you know, employment was pretty strong coming into the COVID crisis. So there are different options and tools, if you will, that the hands of policymakers, but they really depend on the problem. But I'll talk about, you know, there's kind of three big ones that we can think about and that we thought about as we were thinking about how this HHF program that we're analyzing, you know, compares to some of the other things out there. So one is this is is loan modification. So basically what that means is that, you know, a person has missed some mortgage payments. And usually when you get to, when you miss about three mortgage payments, so you're about 90 days past due, that's when a lender is going to start this foreclosure process. And so they're actually going to, you know, they're going to, it's a lengthy process, but they're going to start it at about 90 days. And so one of the things that a loan modification can do is it can simply say, all right, you're three months behind on your payment. We're going to provide you that, those three months that you missed. So let's say you've missed you know, $1,000 a month in payments, $3,000 total, we're going to take that $3,000 and we're going to modify your loan to kind of refinance that $3,000, if you will, into the loan itself and bring you current, bring you whole. And assuming that your hardship is resolved, like let's just say it was a short hardship that you had, then maybe you're going to be okay and you're going to be able to go on and be just fine. And a lot of the early modifications that we saw with the Great Recession were of that form. So, and oftentimes it was it wasn't even government stepping in early on. It was just the private lender saying, "Okay, you know, you've missed so many payments. Typically, we would start foreclosure, but let's consider a loan modification in this situation. It's going to be more valuable for us. They know foreclosure is really costly, and so they do a, a bit of a cost benefit cal- calculation themselves to say, "Okay, you know, in this situation, we're going to actually net more." 
if we just give you that $3,000 and stick it on there <laughs> than we would if we try to pursue this lengthy foreclosure process. The problem was that, and we'll talk about this later, but a lot of those mods, you know, people just redefaulted later. So, and again, it gets back to this addressing the root cause of the problem. So, you know, while the modification, you know, might bring that person whole temporarily, if you're right back to making that $1,000 payment and you have not resolve the underlying hardship. Maybe somebody in your house lost their job. Maybe you had a cut in wages. If that hasn't been resolved, then you may still really struggle to, to keep up with your payments. And so there's also a loan modification that might and they've actually found this to be the more effective type of mod from, from the Great Recession, where they actually reduce the interest rate on your loan, or they actually reduce your balance rather than just adding to it in order, or they stretch out the terms of your loan in order to lower your monthly payment. So they're actually doing a mod that's going to kind of cut that payment down, maybe even in half. And that could be beneficial for the lender in the long run too, maybe. Absolutely. And again, this kind of cost, but in those situations, government did have to step in with some incentives and subsidies. So, you know, some of the kind of, particularly if we're thinking about cramming down a balance, you know, you know, maybe the lender's willing to let the average, you know, balance was reduced by $70,000, for example, in the, in the Great Recession. And, and, you know, that's a lot of money. And so the lender might say, yeah, 30000 of that seems to be in the money for me to do. But, you know, the, the government comes in and incentivizes that, that remainder. So the loan mod programs, you know, but the difference here it's not getting rid of that monthly payment. So the, the next type of thing is, is what we're seeing right now in, in the COVID crisis. And, you know, almost 15% of homeowners in the United States, 15% have been in forbearance at some point since 2020, since COVID started, which is just... And what is forbearance? So for, forbearance is basically the lender saying that you can have a pause or a temporary pause on your mortgage payment while you're experiencing a hardship. So rather than kind of letting the person get to 90 days past due, you basically say, okay, we're going to allow you to have, you know, a certain number of months where you don't have to make your mortgage payment at all. We're going to not call it the in default or delinquent. And we understand that you've had a hardship and we're going to give you this temporary pause on your payments. And and lenders can voluntarily do this. And, and they did to some extent before COVID, but usually it was like one month, maybe two months. And it was in extenuating circumstances, a borrower would call up and say they lost their job or they had a, you know, a horrible medical event. And, you know, lenders might be willing to do that on a one-off basis. But what we saw in COVID was this just systemic rollout of forbearance. And part of that was the federal government getting involved and requiring all federally insured mortgages, which as well as you know, Fannie and Freddie mortgages, which is, like I said, 70% of the market, to require to offer forbearance to borrowers. With no required documentation of hardship, they could just say, literally say that they had a hardship due to COVID and get this, this forbearance. And it was guaranteed to be six months long, and then you could extend it for another six months, and in some cases, even up to 18 months. You know, it was interesting. So government kind of made took the big step to, to do this, but private lenders or, or loans that weren't insured by the federal government also stepped up and did this too, because again, they did the math and they realized, you know, it's going to be a lot more costly to foreclose. So I was going to ask, does the federal government have the power to require this sort of pause or forbearance for a private sector loan that's not insured by the government? 
Not so much. I mean, I think that there may be ways to structure that, but and for sure, I mean, there could be regulations that, you know, we could we could have that would kind of step into that market to, to try to require something like that. But, you know, using the traditional tools available to government that we already have in place, absent some additional authority being delegated. It's only for publicly insured loans. Exactly. And that was one of the worries when the, when forbearance started was that, you know, we've got people that don't have Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or FHA loans that are going to fall through the cracks. You know, by and large, a lot of those private, um, privately securitized mortgages, they were still able to get this. Not all, though. And so there is still a bit of a worry about who falls through the cracks in that time. But yeah, I mean, and so the last type and what we're going to talk about or what we looked at in our paper, you know, the forbearance really did not exist en masse until COVID. It was kind of this one-off thing that might happen, you know, again, temporarily, but it it really wasn't a policy that was um, being implemented en masse before COVID. And so HHF, which happened, you know, back in 2010, was really ahead of its time. I mean, in many ways, you know, we had no idea when we started evaluating this program, if you would have asked me if something like what HHF did would be implemented on a scale that forbearance was implemented, I would have probably said, I can't imagine that. That would be amazing, but I don't think it's going to happen. And so, you know, HHF was really ahead of its time. And it basically, instead of this just modification where we're just going to, not just, but where we're going to cut the mortgage payment in half by modifying the terms of the loan, it literally provided a payment subsidy to individuals to make their mortgage payment for them during a time of hardship. And so kind of like forbearance, where you didn't have to make that monthly payment yourself, you didn't have to be in default already. So you could just simply have had a hardship and they'd come in. But rather than it being a forbearance, with a forbearance, you still are going to have to repay those payments at some point. So everybody that's getting the COVID forbearance, it's not a subsidy. So if you've missed six months of payments... It's just postponing an eventual payment. Exactly. And and they might get rolled into the balance, which sounds like a loan mod <laughs> at the end, or they might, you know, people might be able to catch them back up. With the HHF program, it literally was a subsidy. So it, it, it literally, you know, provided that payment through the borrower. And so did they literally mail checks to the borrowers or did they pay the banks directly? No, they actually, so interestingly, this was rolled out under the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which many of you listeners may know, the TARP program, and and, and think about it as the big bank bailout. And actually, you know, it was, but it also had a carve out in it to provide support to homeowners. However, because of the way it was structured, the way Treasury structured TARP, all the money had to go to banks. And so they actually, the money went directly to, um, so the, the, the to, to your bank, in essence, it, it went through a bank subsidiary and then to your bank to be able to pay your mortgage payment. So it didn't actually put cash in the hands of the borrowers specifically. I wanted to just jump in and, and also add there that the, the structure of the assistance was actually a silent second lien, meaning that it was a zero payment zero interest lien on the home. And the reason that it was structured that way was to essentially encourage people to stay in their homes um, for at least five or 10 years, depending on which state you lived in. And that lien was forgiven over time. So if the homeowner did happen to move or sell or refinance before that lien was fully forgiven, they only had to repay the portion that was unforgiven if they had proceeds from that sale or refinance. But it kind of provided this extra little incentive to keep the homeowner in their home and and just to try to prevent people from the moral hazard, from accepting assistance and then turning around and and trying to make a profit on the sale of their home. So I want to talk about the moral hazard more in a second, but just to to sort of wrap up our our high-level overview of the Hardest Hit Fund HHF program, 
you said it was launched in 2010 as part of TARP. This is at you know the big massive response to the Great Recession. If I understand this right, the Treasury Department put up close to $10 billion just for this hardest hit fund. Is that a lot of money? Could it have been more? It was a lot of money. And actually, that amount did expand somewhat over time. There was an initial wind down of the hardest hit fund um, in most states around 2014, 2015, as their initial pots of money um, dwindled. But then Treasury ended up reallocating some funds from other states that had not uh, spent all of their dollars. And so some states like Ohio actually ended up getting more money um, and extending certain programs, but um, in a a less robust uh, version of HHF than um, the version that wound down at the end of 2014. And almost all of that $9.6 billion, almost all of that was these subsidy payments that went to the banks. Right. And it took various forms. So I think that was a, an important and innovative part of the Hardest Hit Fund. So the most popular program is this mortgage payment assistance program that provided several months of mortgage payments to, to homeowners through their banks um, to keep them in their houses while they were undergoing a financial hardship. But there were other programs as well. So um, some states had mortgage modification programs where they used the HHF assistance kind of as a a carrot to incentivize servicers to do these big modifications. There were recast programs where the assistance was provided to the lender and then the loan was re-amortized. And so this resulted in a permanently lower payment for the homeowner. There were loan payoff programs. So if the homeowner actually had a very low balance, then that assistance amount could be applied to just pay off the loan in its entirety. So there were different forms of assistance depending on That was helpful because some of the homeowners coming into HHF had temporary hardships like unemployment, but there was sort of a light at the end of the tunnel. And then some of them experienced more permanent forms of income loss. So for instance, if your spouse passed away, in a normal housing market, if your spouse passed away and they were contributing to the mortgage and you could no longer afford it, you could just sell your house. But in during the Great Recession, housing prices collapsed. And so people found themselves underwater, but they still had those typical everyday hardships that, you know, that people are going to experience through their their lifetimes and they found themselves unable to sell their homes. And so those these other types of assistance, they were less utilized than the mortgage payment assistance program that we analyze here, but they were important for providing a form of assistance to people who had permanent hardships. One thing I just want to point out too, even in our study, a lot of the folks that we looked at had, so 97% of the people in our main main sample, or 97% of the, the assistance went to people with mortgage payment assistance, but they could actually do two things. They could get mortgage payment assistance and they could get bring them mortgage current, which was called rescue payment assistance, like Stephanie said. So if they had already missed three payments, they could get this rescue payment that might pay that $3,000 that they missed, and then they could get mortgage payment assistance on top of it to kind of pay their payments while they're they're still undergoing a hardship. And and that was pretty common. So while most of our people got mortgage payment assistance, some of them also got this kind of like a rescue payment assistance or in some cases, rare cases, a modification. And you've used the term underwater a few times. I just want to make sure our listeners understand what that means. If a house is underwater, it means that the borrower owes more to the bank than they could currently sell the house for. And that's a big problem. And it might even motivate you to 
intentionally default on your mortgage. You may. I mean, there's something called strategic default, right? And so there was concern about this. And this was talked about a lot in the Great Recession that, you know, people are going to strategically default because they have, they actually owe more than their house is worth. Um, but you know what? We didn't, the, the nature of that problem, there's a lot of research on this is, is that, you know, how many people are actually strategically defaulting when they're underwater? And, and while some do, for sure, it's not clear that that's the main driver of default. There's kind of a, you know, controversy in the mortgage literature. Is it is it about your, you know, your LTV and, and your, <laughs> how much you owe relative to your balance? Or is it about kind of your cash flow and how much and your ability to just make the payments? And, you know, surprisingly, some people will don't default despite the fact that they may owe more than their house is worth because of the externalities for the individual, too, of defaulting on this loan, um, you know, can cause. The other thing I had just mentioned is, is moral hazard. In some sense, this HHF program is a, is a form of insurance. Whenever we talk about insurance, the term moral hazard comes up. What is moral hazard and what does moral hazard look like in the context of providing mortgage subsidies uh, like the HHF did? So many of the listeners might be familiar with insurance markets, like you said. And, you know, in the insurance market, we think, you know, the people that buy insurance, particularly when it's optional, perhaps they're the people that are sicker or they're the people that know that they're going to have some crisis. And so you've got an adverse selection issue, but then also a moral hazard that, you know, they're they're actually going to consume more of it because they actually know that they're or, or they intentionally know that they're going to be uh, the people that need it. You know, in the, in the mortgage context, the same sort of thing can happen. Actually, there was a lot of worry about this with some of the modification programs early on that, you know, they actually required you to be in default on the mortgage in order to qualify for the modification. And so there are some studies that show that in some cases, people may have defaulted on the mortgage in order to get that modification and otherwise they would not have defaulted. So they would have been making their payment, but they wanted to get this modification that would lower the amount that they owed, for example, and so they might default to do that. And, you know, again, this notion of strategic default that you talked about, you could say, well, what if people intentionally take out these really large loans, knowing they're going to just put that to the lender, you know, when, when things when times get rough. And, and so it's almost this kind of um, by, by knowing that you have this modification out there, you might incentivize people to do risky things that they wouldn't otherwise do if they didn't think that, you know, there might be this backstop that comes in to help them out. And do we have any evidence that people did? act more risky? There is some evidence that with, um, for example, there was a study that found that, like I said, some borrowers that needed to be passed due in order to qualify for some of the modifications that lenders were offering, they actually did find some evidence that there was some strategic defaulting in order to get that assistance. But, you know, we don't see as much evidence in for this in, in some of the other types of mortgage assistance that we've talked about. So there have been some studies in COVID times, and they're not finding that forbearance is being taken up by people, even though there's no required hardship documentation. You know, you could literally have called your lender and said, I had a hardship due to COVID. I'm not able to make my payment and you could get forbearance. They didn't find people doing that who hadn't legitimately lost their job. So they would, you know, there've been some studies that have then linked back to income data and, you know, it looks like people legitimately lost their job first. And, you know, if the eligibility is tied to a loss of a job and, and HHF as well, 
was tied to a loss of job, it's less likely that people are going to stop working just to get these mortgage subsidies because the value of these subsidies are far less than the loss of the wages that they're going to have. We did worry a little bit when we were doing our evaluation. And actually, this was an empirical question about you know, the way that the HHF payment subsidies work and forbearance is that you continue getting these subsidies as long as you're unemployed. So you worry a little bit about what people who are labor economists study when they think about unemployment insurance, that people might, you know, actually delay their unemployment in order to keep getting the benefit. And that's possible. But again, it comes back to that, like, you know, the opportunity cost of or, or, you know, how much you could get in wages versus what you're able to get from these subsidies. But yeah, there's just been little evidence. And I also feel like there's this, uh, you know, there's like the the pride of homeownership and the stigma of of possibly losing your house that is probably a little different than maybe the unemployment case. But I guess uh, the other thing that struck me, though, is that even if there is a little bit of this type of moral hazard, even if there's a little bit of people trying to get an extra payment, even if that's so, the benefits of, of avoiding foreclosures broadly still probably outweighs that cost of a handful of payments that maybe shouldn't have been made. Is, is that the sense that you got from your study? Absolutely. I mean, I think too, like Stephanie Casey Pierce mentioned, you know, there are many of these. So, so for example, with HHF, there is going to be a lien on your property, usually five to 10 years. It's forgivable. You're not making a payment on it, but it's a lien. And so, you know, they, they built that to try to prevent exactly this moral hazard that, oh, people are just going to rush in and get this um, and it's a subsidy and then sell their home the next day and turn a profit, right? <laughs> and so by having that, you know, that friction there, if you will, it does add a little bit of a barrier to that. I mean, you know, something we will probably talk about later, but, you know, some of these programs are very onerous as well to apply for. And, you know, in some ways, they're probably too onerous. And, you know, forbearance wasn't onerous at all. And sometimes, you know, economists talk about using these kind of onerous application requirements to try to uh, weed out those who are really in need because they're going to persist through um, versus those that might just do it to take advantage of the program. And actually, even with something like the COVID forbearance that was offered, not finding evidence of moral hazard suggests that, you know, to your point, like, you know, this the attachment to my home, the, um, you know, the, the stigma associated with defaulting, you know, and just the kind of financial severity of a job loss, like all of those are, you know, kind of preventing this kind of widespread moral hazard that you might otherwise see. And those uh, sort of costly ordeals are, are sometimes called administrative burdens, which was the uh, topic of our last episode with Carolyn Heinrich talking about the administrative burden of healthcare uptake. And there's certainly some of that here. And I guess that's that's a really natural segue into the other critique that I've heard of these programs, which is that, you know, we shouldn't do it because we're just throwing good money after bad and we're just delaying the inevitable default, the inevitable foreclosure, and we're just wasting money. And that, I think, is also an empirical question. And, and that's really part of what your study is going to answer, right? We want to find out is this delaying the inevitable or is it actually preventing foreclosures over the long run? That's absolutely right. I mean, going into the study, we sort of held our breath because, you know, we know that while mortgage payments are being paid by the subsidy, that people aren't going to foreclose, obviously. I mean, I mean, you still could in theory, like there's actually things you could do that you could, could, could cause you to foreclose. So if you, you got your job back and you didn't let the state agency know and, you know, and then you stop making your payments, it could still happen. But theoretically, we expect that while you're getting the subsidy, you're going to be fine. But the question is, what happens when the subsidy ends, right? So, and we were worried about this because there were a lot of studies coming out related to the HAMP modifications 
that hit exactly what you said, this kind of redefault problem where we're just kind of kicking the can down the road. You know, yes, they, you know, the subsidy to, you know, catch up the three months of mortgage payments that you missed, it brings you whole and you're okay for a few months, but then you haven't addressed the underlying loss of income or liquidity shock or the fact that this person had a really bad mortgage that was really expensive that they really can't afford. And if you don't address those problems, then you're just kicking it down the road and you're putting a lot of good money out there and it's just it's it's not really addressing the issue. And so we theoretically thought that this is different. This kind of payment uh, subsidy is, is, is theoretically having a different mechanism than these modifications because, you know, we, we're actually going to zero out the payment. We're not just reducing the size of the payment. We're zeroing it out during the time that they have this income shock. And then their payment comes back when that shock ends. And the hope, the hope that, you you know, is that those individuals have been able to, you know, get their job back or, or find employment again. And so when it recovers, you're actually in a better position that, they, that they're going to be able to, to kind of keep up with the payment. You know, the other thing, oftentimes, you know, this HHF was launched when housing markets were just tanking. And so by giving people that pause as well for 18 months, you're also allowing the housing market to recover a little bit, if you will. And so it's kind of this double benefit of like where the way this pause works, it's actually not only kind of giving a pause to the individual during their time of crisis, but it's giving a pause to, you know, the market to recover during the time of crisis too. So we have theoretical reasons to expect this is not going to just kick the can down the road, but, you know, you hold your breath wondering if that's actually what's going to happen. Well, let's stop holding our breath and hear the answer. What happened? Did it work? Yeah. So what's fun is that, you know, we actually do see that for sure, while people are getting the subsidy, surprise, surprise, they, uh, you know, by and large don't foreclose. And and so you find this, this really pretty huge treatment effect, um, you know, at 12 months, we actually look at multiple points afterwards. And at 12 months, after the start of the subsidy, and many of them are still getting it at that point. So the subsidy can last between 12 and 24 months, depending on the state. And so it wasn't surprising to us that at 12 months, well, guess what? If you pay people's mortgages, they don't foreclose. (laughs) But then, you know, even by 48 months after the start of assistance, and so now we're talking at least two years after the assistance has ended, we find this 26 percentage point reduction, which is a 41% reduction in the probability of severe default and foreclosure among people that got assistance relative to the comparison groups that we look at. And this is a really huge effect. And, you know, honestly, it's believable, but it is large because a lot of those folks, you know, do end up uh, absent this program, they would have ended up in a foreclosure or default situation. So you're starting from a large base, but you're reducing that, you know, quite substantially. Can you put that big effect in context or or compare it to other programs or or the uh, other economic downturns? So, you know, there've been, like I mentioned, there's a lot of studies that have been out there on HAMP, the Home Affordable Mortgage Program that was really trying to help modify mortgages. So the loan mods were at the center of that. And there were, you know, two types of loan mods. One was you know, essentially a principal reduction. Um, so gonna gonna make the balance lower. And the idea was this, if it's all about strategic default and people are defaulting because they have this negative equity situation or because they have this huge amount of debt that they owe in their home, if we cram down that balance, then they're gonna be okay and they're gonna make their payments. And the other is this payment reduction. And you know what they found that there was actually no significant long-term effect on reducing default 
if all you do is lower the balance that they owe. So this is a study by Ganong and Noel and AER that came out in 2020, and they basically found no effect of just cramming down the balance. But with payment reductions, they do find an effect. And so, and they, they exploit some really cool things to kind of tease out the effect of reducing a payment versus reducing a balance. So it's a, it's a really good study. And they found that if you reduce the payment, so the average size payment reduction, which again, wasn't that large, but it was, it was substantial. They found a 6% percentage point decline in the default rate of 32%. So that's about a 19% reduction in, in the default rate for these kind of modifications that reduce the payment. And, you know, we're finding a 41% reduction when you get rid of the payment altogether. So, you know, it kind of makes sense. The most aggressive modifications would cut the payment in half. And so if you think about it that way, then the twice as big is actually mathematically about exactly what we're finding. And also there's something... Uh psychological about zero payment versus, you know, just a reduced payment for sure. And if you don't have any income, right, if you've completely lost your job, then any payment could be, you know, difficult to, to make. And then again, I think it's important that, that you do see these long run effects one, two years down the road from the payment stopping. So the HHF program that we're talking about in your study here initiated in 2010 during the Great Recession. But I, if I understand right, a similar HHF-style program was just launched last year as part of the American Rescue Plan Act in response to COVID. Is it fair to think that we'd see similar benefits from this sort of new version of the HHF? Actually, I think there's even, there's kind of two questions there. I mean, so one is just how does forbearance going to compare to what we found in HHF? So, you know, the people that received forbearance, the, the almost 15% of people that ever received forbearance, you know, during this COVID crisis, you know, do we expect that they're going to still be able to maintain their mortgage payments later on? You know, I think by and large, the research is that the preliminary stuff, the data that's coming out is saying, yes, there are. Although there are still people that are in forbearance, so we don't know yet. There's an empirical question there, but you're absolutely right. So they've just launched um, in every state now. So when HHF was launched in 2010, it was only in 18 states that were hardest hit by the crisis. And those were defined as states that had a significant drop in uh, house values or a significant spike in um, unemployment rates. With the version that's coming out now, it's actually called HALF, not to be confused. So the Homeowners Assistance Fund, um, so the, the hardest hit fund, HHF, was the, the, the version that we studied in 2010. And essentially, they're re-rolling out the same exact type of thing, and they're calling it HALF now. So look it up. It's in your state, Homeowner Assistance Fund. And it's essentially going to do the same thing where you know it can provide this, this mortgage payment assistance. So if somebody is rolling off a of forbearance, but they still don't have a job, or they experience a new um, COVID-related hardship to their income, they could qualify for now a subsidy to help make that payment rather than just a forbearance. But it's also going to, you know, probably, you know, my guess is that that mortgage payment assistance component may be less, uh, comprised less of the type of assistance that we see in this crisis than what we saw in the last crisis because we had the aggressive forbearance that sort of already played that role. And so now we may be looking at people that need help. They've had this huge amount of forbearance provided and they really can't afford to tack that onto the balance of their loan. And the subsidies might be able to help for, you know, forgive some of that balance. Or it could be people that have, you know, we're also going to have different selection issues where the people that are still unemployed today are really experiencing a hardship. I mean, those are individuals that are really deeply. And so the selection issue of um, the types of individuals that are going to get assistance 
now through this half program, they may be in you know a more precarious economic situation personally than the individuals who selected into HHF. On the other hand, the economy is in our favor this time. So we have a really strong labor market or relatively strong labor market right now. We have strong house prices. And so in some ways that should help, you know, individuals recover more quickly. And perhaps we will see very similar outcomes, if not even stronger outcomes. So I think it's an empirical question. I agree. But I I do think that there's something to take from your study into today. So I guess related to some of that, then whether we're talking about the current situation or 2010. The other question here that I was thinking about a lot when I was reading your study is, what's the right amount of assistance in terms of, I think probably paying the full payment is right, but then how long do you make those payments? You said payments were happening for two years in some cases. Does it ever make sense to like go longer than that or to, to tie it directly to wages or employment? Or how did the original HHF settle how long to make those payments for? And then like, did they do it right? What, what would you advise moving forward? I can actually speak directly to how we worked through that problem in the state of Ohio. And I, I should say that, you know, the right amount of assistance, you know, in part varies on your housing market. So, you know, we saw much higher maximum benefit amounts in states like New Jersey and California, right? So you have to take that into consideration. But in terms of like, what's the appropriate length of time? I mean, that's going to depend on your labor market, which is a state by state consideration. But of course, you know, at the beginning of the recession, we didn't know how long it was going to last, right? So we we made an initial assumption that the 12 months was going to be enough. And then what happened was in real time, people would roll off assistance and call us and say, I don't know what to do. I, you know, I'm still unemployed. I haven't found a job. And we were getting signals too from the federal government because they were extending unemployment insurance. And so we could see in real time, like, you know, maybe this isn't going to go away as quickly as we thought. And maybe 12 months in this labor market is not enough time to find a job. So we went back to the table two more times. We increased the length of unemployment or the length of the MPA program to 15 months. And then we extended it to 18 months. And part of the rationale behind 18 months was the idea that maybe some some people were going back to school and we wanted people to have assistance to uh, sustain them while they were um, getting a, a degree or going through training and doing whatever they needed to do to bump up to that next level. So that that was sort of what was behind that. And, and you do see in some states um, that the assistance went up to 20 four months. But it was very, very dependent on um, the labor markets in each state. And I guess that, I mean, that flexibility is key because like you said, you don't know, nobody knows when the recession is going to end. Although the, the fact that it varies by state makes me wonder, I mean, even in Ohio, the housing market in say Cleveland is probably very different from, you know, rural parts of the state. Is it a sort of uniform across the state or is there even variation in what you're able to do more locally? Well, you know, when we, from an implementation standpoint, the goal was to increase efficiency and we also wanted to maximize program generosity. So when we first designed the program, we did try to designate hardest hit counties within the state of Ohio. And that didn't last very long in part because we got significant pushback from the counties who were not deemed hardest hit and were not happy with the with how we reached that designation. Um, but also just from an implementation standpoint, that just requires 
an additional level of processing and approval. And then people in different counties are, are going through and having different experiences. So in the end, we we tossed that out and we tried to maximize generosity. So, you know, if Cleveland was the county that had the highest unemployment and the people in, in Cuyahoga County needed to have longer time to search for a job, then that was the standard for the entire state. And we ended up going to that standard um, when we set AMI or area median income maximums as well. So I think we have a pretty good sense then of, of sort of the motivation for the policy and understanding what the policy did. And at a very basic level, it worked. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about, I think, the, the really clever part of, of how you answered this question. And the problem, like so often in, in policy research, is that we don't have a, a random experiment. And that, like you said, there's selection into who takes advantage of these programs. And then, of course, not just at the individual level, but also some states had it and some states didn't. I think you said 18 states. And so your very clever approach to answering this question of, you know, did it work, is to exploit the fact that some metropolitan areas spill across state boundaries, like the Philly suburbs spread into New Jersey and Pennsylvania, the DC suburbs spread into Maryland and Virginia. And when one of those states has the policy and the other doesn't, you can kind of get an apples to apples comparison of homeowners who are, for all intents and purposes, in the same labor market, in the same region, in the same climate, but they're on the PA or New Jersey side of the of the line. And that's what you really leverage your analysis on. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and sort of uh, explain why this is such a powerful strategy? So yeah, it's we, we picked four MSAs that overlapped with an HHF and a non-HHF state, like the Philly metro that you mentioned. And, you know, we match individuals to, so people that um, are on the HHF side, we match them to somebody on the non-HHF side. And then we also match them to somebody within the state. So <laughs> one of the worries that you have is that, well, okay, you're going to do this matching and you're going to make us look otherwise similar. So we basically get somebody that looks otherwise similar. So a person that's on, you know, the uh, New Jersey side and then a person that's on the Pennsylvania side, for example, and the New Jersey side happened to be an HHF program state and the, the, the Pennsylvania side happened to not be. Or And then you actually, you know, look to see, you make sure the person is, is otherwise similar on characteristics like credit score, like prior wages, like their assets, the income. And the, the assumption is that that otherwise these, these individuals have been having similar, would, would have had similar outcomes, that they are otherwise experiencing the same labor market, experiencing a very similar economic cycle, house price cycle, absent, you know, the fact that one state just happens to lie or, uh, you know, one individual happens to live in a state that lies on the other side of the border. And, you know, there are definitely threats to that. You know, one of the worries that you worry about is that, okay, well, but there's other state policies besides HHF that differ. And so that's why we created this matched group that's also within the state. So we can kind of net out differences that are, you know, that the same person within the same state and then the person across the state border. And you try to kind of triangulate there to tease out the effect that's really due to this particular policy versus something else that might differ about the state. I guess it's almost like a triple differences comparison, sort of you're differencing out this at the state level and then you're differencing out at the HHF level. So I think it's super compelling and a, and a clever idea. The next question then is, you need data to do this. 
How did you find out who received House uh, HHF funds? So this is where that structuring of the assistance came in handy for us. So we mentioned that the HHF assistance was structured as a silent second lien on the properties. And so these were actually recorded in county recorders' offices. And so the um, w- all we had to do was look at the public property records and find um, where the name of the HFA was recorded on the property deeds. And then we worked with CoreLogic and because we could then identify the properties, we could CoreLogic could find all the other liens that were also associated with that property. So then we could identify the primary lien on the property and track its loan performance over time. And then also in Ohio, we have an Ohio sample that we use. And in that case, we had access to the administrative um, data. But we also did match that up to the CoreLogic loan performance data so we could track, again, on the performance of the first lien on the property over time. So the lien data is publicly available because those are just public property, uh, public records for property. The, the core logic is a little harder to get access to. Yeah. So for core logic, you have to purchase that data, but property records data is not necessarily easy to get. It, it depends on the county and whether they make those records easily accessible. And that varies quite a bit. And it would be quite an onerous process to go in and individually collect. And in fact, that's what CoreLogic does. And that's why uh, they they can earn money for doing that work and cleaning that data and then, and then repackaging and selling it. Gotcha. Otherwise, it could be a pretty messy process of going to the courthouses and tracking down these records. And then in terms of outcomes, you know, we said that at a, at a high level, the program worked because it reduced defaults two years later. Were there other outcomes you looked at besides default? You know, just kind of piggyback on this data conversation, you know, so you can identify the the loan, you know, in the CoreLogic data or in public property records, but then you have to know what's happening to that loan over time. And so you want to find data on the monthly kind of performance of this mortgage. And that's, we, we also purchased that data from CoreLogic. They have this, they call it the loan, loan level market analytics data set, the LMA data set. We purchased that data set that gives us, uh, you know, in each period for, for that lead that we found in public property records for each period, how is the person you know performing on that loan? And so there's three different outcomes that we actually look at. And that's important because, you know, I think I mentioned to you, you know, when house prices are falling, it becomes really hard to sell a home. And when house prices are increasing, it becomes easier to sell a home. And, you know, what might happen is that a person that's struggling to make their payments, let's say they've had a cut in their wages, they sell their home and they're able to, you know, rent or find a cheaper house. And that's actually how they avoid default. So in the housing finance world, we often think about these things as we call them competing risks that that you can be thinking about, okay, you could default on your mortgage, but alternatively, you could actually sell your home or prepay the loan. And so in each period, you know, a person is making a decision in theory to stay active on their mortgage, to default on their loan or to sell their home. And that we can't really think about these things as kind of completely independent outcomes. They're actually kind of competing against each other because if I can sell my home, then I'm not going to default by definition. I'm going to sell it and pay off the mortgage. And by contrast, if I can't sell my home and I'm struggling to make my payment, then I might end up in default. And so 
we actually look at, you know, all three of these things. Um, we use a, a competing risk kind of framework to be able to look at each period at the trade-off between. And each period is a, is a monthly interval? Yeah. So we're looking at uh, monthly intervals, um, but then we, we look at, we kind of do these different snapshots. So we have um, a snapshot where we look at 12 months, but then we're looking at kind of your payment performance over the first 12 months. And then we look at a snapshot at 24 months and we look at your payment performance up through the first 24 months. And then we look at 48 and then we look, or 36 and 48. So we're looking at these these different snapshots, but it's kind of your performance during that whole period up to that that point in time. And so what do you find, you know, in this competing risk framework, what do you find at those different snapshots? I think we mentioned this earlier on, but at 12 months, you do see uh, a huge reduction in the default uh, probability, uh, but you also see a huge reduction in the likelihood of prepayment, which makes sense. So if I'm getting my, you know, and it's, maybe this gets a little bit to the moral hazard question, although I, I don't know that I would call it moral hazard per se, but, you know, we have talked about our people then stuck in their homes. You know, if you're getting this this subsidy, you know, yeah, I'm not defaulting, but I also don't want to move. And so we actually have another paper that's looking at the labor market outcomes of this program, because, you know, there's a little bit of a worry potentially that, you know, people are staying in their home, maybe not, you know, mobility is reduced. And we actually do see that prepayment probabilities are lower. And actually, they they remain lower, the prepayment probabilities, um, even through 48 months. So we have that huge reduction in default risk, foreclosure that we talked about, you know, four years later, but we also see a reduction in the prepayment speed. So to me, that seems a little like moral hazard, but is there another story? I think that the other story is, is simply that, you know, Stephanie mentioned this lien on the property. And so because there's a lien on the property, it's not so much a hazard. It's just more of a, like, it's an actual, like, financial consideration that if I move from this house, if I sell this house, then I have to repay a portion of the assistance I got if I do that within five years. And so I'm sort of, you know, almost stuck in a way. And you, and you worry about that a little bit, but it's not a moral hazard per se. It's more of a just financial, the math um, just doesn't work for me to, to sell the home. And, you know, and, and like she said, you, you would only repay it if you make money on the sale. So it, you're never going to be in a situation where, you know, I sell the home and I, I don't make any money on the sale or I only make a little bit of money and I have to give that all back to the government. Uh, that wasn't how it was structured. But if, if you make a decent profit from the sale of the home, then they are going to ask you to pay back a portion of that assistance within the first five years to try to reduce moral hazard, actually. So it's sort of the opposite of moral hazard, but it does it does reduce prepayment speeds. The other issue that is going to come up with a lot of policies when we have limited resources, you know, this is an expensive program, we have limited money, is the idea of targeting the program to the households that would benefit the most. And to sort of get at this question of like, if we need to target who should be targeted, you do some exercises where you allow the effect to vary by different household type. Specifically, you look at households that are underwater, that owe more than their house is worth. Then you also look at people that are already 90 days late on their mortgage payment and specifically see for those populations who you know are more at risk of having a foreclosure, does this program help them more or less? 
than the general population. Uh, what, what do you find there for those groups? So part of why we looked at this was because there was this sense that if somebody's really underwater on their mortgage, so there's a kind of a theoretical expectation that if somebody is really underwater, that in fact, you know, you can give them payment subsidies, but they're just going to redefault as soon as, you know, that, that, that ends because they're so underwater that, you know, it's just not worth it for them to keep the home. And so you might say, well, maybe I don't want to target this payment assistance at people who are underwater. Maybe, maybe I want to only give this payment assistance to people that have some equity so that when they come out of this, they're, they're, you know, they're going to be... They still want to make the payments. Exactly, right? They have an incentive to stay. And so it was an important policy question to look at that. And we actually, you know, found that if anything, the effect size was larger for the people who were underwater. So, you know, at 48 months, we found this 46% reduction, 33 percentage point reduction in the probability of redefault for those who are underwater, um, which if anything is a little bit larger than the effect for, it's not significantly different, but it's a little bit larger in, in actual magnitude to the effect that you see for those people that aren't underwater. And, you know, we're not the only people. There's another study um, by Chris Girardi, actually, who found something similar, but not, not obviously with HHF, but just in general that, you know, people who are underwater it, aren't necessarily strategically defaulting on their loans. And so this sort of supports that idea that you know it's it's it, we can target a program they like their house they like their community and they want to stay exactly and so it's not just flushing the, the money down the toilet if a government were to target a program to people who are even underwater on their loan and then the other thing we looked at was whether they were delinquent or not or severely in default so you know some of the government policies hamp in particular it was pretty much limited to people who were already in default on their mortgage and if you weren't in default you wouldn't be able to get it and so we wanted to know okay well is this a fact only going to work for people if they're already on default? Or what if we like actually with HHF, you know, almost 40% of people who received assistance were not in default when they applied for assistance. So they were actually still current on their loan, sort of like forbearance now, you know, you're, you just know you've had a hardship and you don't want to miss the payment. And so you apply and really this had not been tested before. And so, you know, positively we found, yes, it definitely reduces default among those people who were in default. And it's a little bit larger, but we still found a 36% reduction in default for those who were not in severe default in their mortgages and got this mortgage payment subsidy. So, you know, some of those people would have otherwise likely ended up in default is what this tells us, absent this sort of an intervention. And it means that, you know, what HHF was doing by targeting people who, you know, weren't already behind on mortgage payments was, was somewhat unique to what they could get in the market. We actually, you know, we included an indicator for having a modification, which, you know, it, there's some selection issues with it, but, but we, we could tell if somebody had a prior modification and we found no effect of this prior modification on redefault for people that hadn't had, you know, any kind of a, a delinquency situation before. But you do see that this seems to be, this mortgage payment assistance seems to be having this unique effect for individuals, regardless of whether or not they were in default or not um, when they applied for assistance. I think that's a really important result of your paper, like because like you said, no one really looked at this before. But it to me at least it's not surprising if we think, you know, being proactive is going to prevent problems down the road. And, you know, same as in medicine, preventative healthcare is going to be cost effective because you're going to avoid problems before they get severe. 
And I think that's, you know, a lot of the the kind of policy discussion, even before COVID actually, was really focusing on how do we put in these kind of automatic stabilizers into mortgage markets, ex ante. So like ahead of time, let's not wait for a crisis, but let's figure out exactly what you're saying. You know, we know that the number one reason that people end up um, defaulting on their mortgage is because of lack of liquidity or lack of income or some sort of cash flow shock, that that's actually the number one driver of default. Not necessarily, yeah, having a high loan to value ratio matters, but really it's this this liquidity crunch. And often those are temporary, right? So like if you have a loss of income, that's, that's a temporary thing. So how could we build this into a mortgage contract knowing that people might have particularly you know, we've had a big push to increase home ownership among low and moderate income populations, rightly so, because there's huge gaps in the home ownership rate between, you know, people of color and people who are white. And we we need programs that get more people into home ownership um, so that people have equal access. However, if we, you know, just increase home ownership and we don't ensure that they have a cushion to fall back on when things happen, which they inevitably will, people lose their jobs, water heaters break, roofs, you know, need repaired. When you have that financial shock, if you don't have some way to kind of, if you don't have money in the savings account to kind of buffer that shock, then, you know, people end up in these default situations. So, you know, I really think that our paper, along with some of the other research that had been done just kind of theoretically thinking about these kind of automatic stabilizers is really the future. Like that's, that's, that's where we're going to be heading. I think is to think about how do we build this in more from the kind of upfront rather than waiting for a crisis and building this in the back, how do we structure this so that, you know, the mortgage contract is actually designed to have this sort of a reset. You know, some have even proposed, okay, if, if unemployment rates hit a certain rate in your area, then, you know, you automatically are eligible for forbearance, for example, that there could be ways that we build in these kind of automatic rules that, you know, chip, that click in something like this. You know, there's a cool program in uh, Massachusetts that they've actually been doing this for a while called the MI plus program. And it's a program that they provide for their all of their loans that they make to low and moderate income borrowers, where they're actually paying this like additional insurance premium, a small portion of their monthly payment is this small insurance premium that then is basically insuring against the loss of a, if they have any kind of loss of income, it can pay their payment for up to six months. And this actually existed, you know, before HHF, this existed before forbearance. It's a state that came up with this creative solution because they knew they were making loans to people, you know, who had otherwise, you know, didn't have wealth. They didn't have large amounts of savings to fall back on. And they wanted to make sure there was some sort of liquidity there for them. And to me, that just makes sense. And I think we were entering a world of of big data and predictive algorithms that being proactive is is not that hard to sort of anticipate and and built in these uh, automatic stabilizer type programs. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think your study provides some some evidence uh, and and some motivation for for doing that more consistently and seriously. That said, I do want to ask about the cost side. We've talked a lot about the benefits, and your study is really documenting the, the benefits in terms of reduced foreclosures. Are you able to do anything, even sort of back of the envelope, comparing the costs and benefits of the HHF program? And if so, what do you find there? You're right. That is something that is super important, and it's also really challenging. Um, I mean, I think we talked about a lot of this, this, these externalities, and so it's hard to put a price on some of those externalities. And so 
write a full cost benefit analysis was was kind of beyond the scope of what we could do. But we could do some just basic financial projections. And so we knew that the average borrower subsidy amount was 17000 like Stephanie Casey Pierce mentioned in our data. So the average borrower got about $17,000. And then we knew that, you know, what the default rate was, uh, 24 percentage point reduction in the default rate, but we, we knew. So, so basically our program, the HHF program, cost the government about $70,000 per person default, which seems really high. But however, it's actually less than the typical loss severity that would be experienced by a lender and government um, during this period of time on a foreclosed property. So I mentioned at the outset of our conversation that, you know, during this crisis period, the average lender actually lost 40 to 50 percent of the loan balance through the foreclosure process. So they didn't recapture that. So maybe they had an average loan of $200,000 and they were only able to recapture $100,000 of that when they took into account what they had to sell the house for, plus all of the costs that were associated with the foreclosure. And so, you know, we we looked in our data and we said, OK, let's be conservative and say that there was a loss severity of 40 percent. And our average balance mortgage balance was $206,000. And so we said, on average, a lender then would lose $82,000 per defaulted loan that ends in foreclosure in our data. And so we found a cost of about $70,000 per default prevented. <laughs> and so we're like, okay, you know, you're, you're netting, you're still in the positive then. This is cheaper than kind of proceeding through the, the foreclosure the foreclosure process. And so, you know, using all of those calculations, we say, okay, the HHF program expended about $7 billion on direct assistance to direct borrowers through the various programs they had. And then we applied the loss severities that they would have otherwise lost if the people that, you know, had defaulted that we, we estimate would did not default because of the program, we estimate that they avoided loss severities of about $1.3 billion through the program, which, you know, again, that's just the financial cost. That's not taking into account any of the externalities that might be associated with avoiding other people's property values tanking and avoiding loss of property tax revenue and things like that. So it, it passes a net benefit sort of test in, in that sense, because if, if we factored in more of the externalities the program's even more beneficial. So even without those, the, the program is is worthwhile, and it's probably even more worthwhile than what we're able to to say here. That's right. And again, we're just looking kind of at the financial, the savings, right? So right, none of like the psychic costs of moving and so on. So we're we're about out of time, but th- there was a, a couple more things I, I wanted to get in. I think one thing that struck me while I've just been thinking about this policy is renters. And this program is specifically for homeowners. Is there any sort of analog that provides like a freeze on rent payments or a subsidy uh, assistance for rent payments for folks who are not homeowners, but but might similarly have a short-term loss of income that could then trigger an eviction and, and a lot of the similar costs we're talking about, like moving apartments and so on. Is that on your radar at all? Or is that just a separate world? I'm really glad you asked this question. And quite a bit of my research focuses on evictions. And I and I think this is really important. But you know, one of the lessons that I think we learned from the Great Recession is that we shouldn't be ignoring the rental market, um, which we largely did um, during the Great Recession. So there wasn't any kind of federal level assistance to help renters, even though renters, you know, were also experiencing job loss and other financial hardships during this time. And on top of that, um, if a renter had a landlord 
landlord who experienced a financial shock, then they were at risk of being evicted via foreclosure. And there, you know, there was legal aid and and some other, you know, minor types of assistance that were available for renters, but just nothing that was uh, that was systematic. This time around, the federal government really paid attention to renters. And of course, we've probably all heard about the eviction moratoriums that took place. But uh, to your point, there is this HHF-like program established for renters that is active now called the Emergency uh, Rental Assistance Program, or ERA. And it was put in place you know, to prevent that kind of housing instability for renters. And, and it's similar in scope in that it provides uh, monthly rent payments to landlords to help try to keep renters in their properties as they're experiencing a financial hardship. You know, in the earlier version of ERA, that hardship had to be tied directly to COVID, but in the, uh, there's an ERA too that's a little bit more generous in terms of who can qualify for that program. But the idea is building off of HHF that, you know, some sort of subsidy to help stabilize uh, renters and uh, families of, of renters is important um, because there is that that psychic effect that you that psychological effect that you talked about, and there is a benefit to society for keeping people in their homes. Um, you know, avoiding, for instance, if there's children in the home, yeah, having to change schools, having to pack up and and move. These things are are not easy, and they can't be done quickly, and and they can create a substantial hardship for people. That's great. That's interesting. And it's nice to see this sort of that, I guess, on some level, the the government sort of learned the, their lessons from the Great Recession about not focusing on rental markets enough. So it's nice to see that sort of change this time. And so moving forward, then, what are the key lessons? I know we talked about automatic stabilizers, but is there anything else that state and federal and even local policymakers should take away and think about when designing this sort of policy, both like just regular, but also during an economic downturn? You mentioned earlier, you brought up this this issue of administrative burden. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I do think that that is an important takeaway. We haven't talked much about implementation of HHF, but you know, I'm someone who lived that implementation directly as a program manager. And you know, I will say that it's important to pay attention to the administrative burdens associated with the program. Dr. Moulton mentioned that it was an on- onerous program for potential applicants, so they had to fill out a lot of paperwork. They had to find documentation to support the type of hardship that they had. They had to find pay stubs and tax returns and all sorts of things. And that's really important to think about you know, what is the appropriate level there? In some ways, you do want to make sure that you're targeting assistance to people who need it the most. And so in order to do that, you want to try to find ways to verify that you are indeed targeting assistance to people who are most needy. But on the other hand, if administrative burden is too high, if people have too many requirements and hoops that they have to jump through to get assistance, it can actually potentially cause people that you wanted to help to drop out or, you know, create some sort of additional burden or hardship or stress for the people that you're trying to help. And so uh, Dr. Moulton and I are actually writing another paper that we, where we're looking at administrative burdens in the HHF program in Ohio. So, you know, I, I think that that's forthcoming, something to, to look out for. But this is something that's really important. And just a key takeaway 
you know, I do think we have seen some of the lessons from the original administration of the HHF program learned in the newer COVID era programs, for instance, where we are seeing direction from Treasury to try to make the application processes less onerous and to require less documentation or to allow for the targets of the program to attest to their hardships. In other words, just say, yes, this is my hardship rather than requiring them to provide supporting documentation. And I think that's probably the the right direction to go in. So I would call that a key takeaway here as well. I'll just add on that. I mean, I think that obviously one of my, my favorite takeaways from this is the idea of the automatic stabilizer. And I, I really think that, you know, our paper, but then combined with what we've learned from forbearance is really, you know, highlighting that, you know, I think that for states, for local governments, and even for federal, federal governments, we've invested a lot in this issue of, you know, reducing wealth inequality through home ownership. And, you know, in many ways, we could we could say that that's not the right way to go about reducing wealth inequality, that we need to think about other ways. And I would completely agree with you. But, you know, it is one way that we, we reduce wealth inequality is, is through leveling the playing field for being able to buy homes. But I would say we've spent too much time focusing, and myself included, on the getting people into home side of that. So we have these really generous down payment assistance programs that help, you know, people overcome the barrier of getting into the home. But we haven't thought enough about the fact that, okay, they needed down payment assistance because they don't have a lot of other wealth. And yet we're going to put them into a home. And then the first time they have a hiccup that we all will go through where you experience a, you know, a job loss or a water heater break or something there's no cash to turn to for that. And, and we haven't done enough to build in, even if we don't have an automatic stable, even if it's not rolled out en masse, like I think local governments, state governments, and even honestly, quite frankly, I, I think many banks, private servicers, private banks are, are picking up on this. And they're saying, you know, there's a lot of ways that we could improve our, you know, lending to low and moderate income communities to really make sure that we build in these sorts of buffers in the back end And it's actually going to not only be better for us financially, but it's going to move us closer to being able to to reduce this wealth gap than just simply putting people into homes. We've we've got to figure out ways to keep people there. But then also by by doing that, we reduce the entry costs for the next generation of homeowners because, you know, we have lower default rates and so more people can enter. That's an important aspect of this that I I guess I I hadn't thought much about, but you're exactly right. So I think there's a bunch of implications and, and motivations for continuing to deploy and improve these sorts of programs on the margins. Well, th- thank you for sticking with us, everybody. It was really a great pleasure to read this important study and, and learn about the housing market and government responses to economic downturns in the housing market. I want to thank our guests again for joining us and for doing this important work. Dr. Stephanie Moulton is a professor of public policy at Ohio State University, and Dr. Pierce, who is currently at Ohio State, but will soon be an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Tennessee. Thanks again to both of you for joining us, and everybody can find the paper about the hardest hit fund in a article uh, in an issue of JPAM pretty soon. So thanks again. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.